George, thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. So I, you, you have been written about all of these major, and you have a sort of a theory about cycles of the sort of American story as it relates to the cycle. Um, I'm curious, where are we at right now? You wrote a book just a couple of years ago um, about sort of the American political changes in these cycles that transition, but where, where do you think we're at right now in terms of the story? Well, the last cycle began with Ronald Reagan. He changed the tax structure to increase available investments. Had to. Before him was Roosevelt, FDR. He changed the tax structure to get more money into the hands of the people. And we can go back to Andrew Jackson. Every 50 years, we have a presidential shift. It's not the president's personality that matters, but the position we're in. So now we are in the last days of the Reagan cycle. It's run the course. And we are in the usual position. So in the 1970s, we had race riots. The, you had the 82nd Airborne go into Detroit to put down the riot. It was that bad. Uh, we had uh, sexual issues, free trade, free sex. I was in favor, but never got any. <laughs> so you, you had this whole massive instability in the economy, massive inflation. I bought my first house for 19%. Uh, massive instability in the markets. Uh, the Arab the Arab Israeli war led to a boycott on oil. It was a terrible time. We don't remember that because we don't, we're Americans and we don't remember things. So we're back in the same place right now. We're moving into the end of the Reagan period. There is tremendous political instability that goes along with this. Social unrest. We hate each other. And in about two, three years, this election, I don't think is going to solve the problem. The one after it mathematically should. And we'll go back to our normal noisy lives. But we will also believe this is the end of the United States. It cannot survive. Because every time, going back to Andrew Jackson, the belief was we were finished. It's our little game when we enjoy it. So it's, you're fairly optimistic about the state of the U.S., the survivability of the United States, regardless of these sort of geopolitical stripes that happen. The United States is the largest economy in the world, the most creative technically. Uh, it is militarily explosive. Countries like that don't quickly fall. But we also have a way of dealing with crisis. Remember, we're an invented country. It's not France or something. We are in here. And founders invented us. And it was a brilliant invention. But we have to reinvent ourselves periodically. And we have to change who we are and how we behave. And that's where we are now. And I assure you, in 50 years, you won't remember it. You will say again, this is the worst time of all. We're finished. And this is an American. It's hilarious in a way. It's a tragedy in a way. But that's where we are right now. So, George, this audience is certainly uh, more internationally focused than most audiences that um, exist in American society because they're so impacted. The China story is one that's it's obviously on, on a lot of people's mind right now. Um, where are we at as it relates to American and Chinese relations? Well, America and China are intimately bound. Intimately bound usually means 
crisis and war because they're trying to adjust the relationship. But in this particular case, uh, we've the United States has done something really cool that very few people have noticed. In the past month, we signed a treaty with the Philippines, giving us four bases right off the Chinese coast. We signed a deal with Papua New Guinea. We don't sign many deals with them. They gave us missile bases out there. New Zealand came in, believe it or not, and signed a treaty with Fiji to give us bases there. At this moment, we control the Chinese Eastern Littoral from the Aleutian Islands to Australia with no breaks. And that has changed the balance of power dramatically. We're always favoring the United States. But right now, China's basic fear has always been that the United States would blockade their ports and make it impossible for them to trade. They live on trade of exports, and that, that was their fear. Now that fear is really a fear, because now we can do it very effectively. And this just happened in the last few weeks. Suddenly, our foreign minister, uh, Secretary of State, pardon me, uh, has a very pleasant meeting in China. The Chinese are really flexible now. Yeah, I won't uh, say what I said before, but have them buy a certain part of your body. Goodwill will follow. So now, that's where this has changed. I mean, even a month ago, yeah. uh, our Secretary of Defense tried to meet with the equivalent in China, and it was not well received, as I, as the Wall Street Journal reported. It seems like a shift. What has pro prompted that shift in the last couple of weeks? Well, the placement of these missiles. So, right, the Chinese have got to get access to the Pacific Ocean. That's fundamental to their national interest. The U.S. has to keep them out of the Pacific Ocean because the Pacific and the Atlantic are our basic buffers for the world. So that's been the basic issue. Now, trade is also with that. But the issue has been, we need China for trade. China needs us for a trade. We do not want them to have free access to their trading zone. It's a very complicated thing. So what happened was, Philippines was very important. Uh, Xi and Marcos, the president of the Philippines, had a wonderful meeting, very warm and moist and lovely. And he came back and signed a treaty with the United States. So... What's happening here is that American power is asserting itself, and most of the players, including most India, most important India, is shifting to a pro-American stance, and this has China extremely worried, because if the United States chooses at this point to freeze the Chinese out, there's a chance they can do it, and um, they can't risk that. So there are very many toasts in China saying we really have to understand each other better. Yep. Is there, you know, it seems like the, because China's so dependent on trade um, and America has largely outsourced a lot of its manufacturing to China. Is it inevitable that um, this sort of heated uh, relationship or this potential heated relationship is starting to cool off or will inevitably cool off? I never regarded it as heated. I regarded it as posturing. If China kept talking about Taiwan and never invaded. That's an interesting point. I mean, if you really care, shut up and invade. They didn't invade because they couldn't. It's nine hours for an amphibious craft to hit Taiwan if they're lucky. In that time, U.S. satellites will pick up the invasion force 
and our missiles in Guam or our submarines in the area will wreck it. Now, maybe the Chinese wouldn't get hit that hard, but the Chinese can't risk it because Xi can't afford a massive military failure. He can't risk this against the United States. And so, so much of the the U.S.-Chinese relationship has been talk, you know, tough talk, empty talk. Is his position strong as a, as the premier? Is he, he's, I mean, he's indoctrinated himself as, you know, premier for life. Is that, is that inevitable that we're going to be dealing with him 10, 15 years down the road? I don't think so. He came into power at a time when China was surging economically. He came into power where China was surging militarily. There were huge expectations that China was going to, well, not replace the United States, certainly rank with the United States. He's failed. He, everything that he wanted to do, including dominate countries like Philippines, didn't happen. Uh, The Chinese take a long time to fix mistakes. So he probably has some time there, but his influence within the country, I think, is somewhat limited. Um, He met with him, uh, with uh, Blinken, but in the end, What has happened here is he is being blamed for what's not his fault, the decline of the Chinese economy, the weakness in the Chinese foreign policy, and so on. You said it's not his fault. You believe that the Chinese economy, the challenges that it's had, is not policy-driven? There is a 40-year cycle in economies. In In 1890, the United States was a wreck from the Civil War. It decided to become a exporting nation. It did. Uh, a few years later, it was exporting, it was producing half the industrial goods in the world. It was taking it over. And it worked very well in about 1930, 40 years later. The Japanese in 1950, having had Hiroshima fall on them, uh, also became a massive exporting country. And until 1990, it worked. Then they had the lost decade. I don't know what it's called that, but they call it that. Now China is 40 years away from 1980 when it really was the beginning of the surge in China. Economies have cycles, and they have cycles that are built around availability of capital, availability of labor, availability of innovation, and so on. The United States went through that. Um, Japan went through it. Now China's going through it. So the problem that he has is he not only presided over the middle of the boom, he's presiding over the end of it. And nobody likes the guy who Herbert Hoover, who is the end of it. So if you think, you know, a lot of conversation has been about this is the next hundred years of the Chinese. I think that's, you know, I remember being in school in the, uh, the eighties and everyone believed that the Japanese were going to own the world. Uh, we've, we've largely have written, you know, in the West have largely written Jap- Japan off as a sort of a second country versus a sort of a, a world power in many ways. Is it, is it fair to say that China's greatest uh, sort of climax in terms of power is behind us? Or do you think that, that they are going to own the next century? The United States recovered from the first cycle and carefully built something up. But they had to go through a very hard time, the Depression. Japan, right now, is people are not watching, is building a major navy and is building all sorts of important 
technologies, but it has to go through a bad time. Now, China has to go through that bad time. It's a cyclical thing. So China's not finished in any sense. But this cycle of China, this extraordinary growth, well, it ended actually a couple of years ago and is continuing. I mean, the problem they have is their economy went too hot, too fast, and too imbalanced. Usually it does. And they're going to have to correct it. And they will. But this is a political problem. To face the fact that China is not about to overcome the world is a very disfranching thing. And so there's going to be a political unrest. But the one thing that's certain, China must export to the United States. It must import capital into China. American capital is still critical. The United States must have the Chinese goods. It's built this economy around it. So internal chaos notwithstanding, that relationship is locked in. You, you can't separate it out at this point. You think the Chinese can, you think they can calculate that they could actually take Taiwan or is that just posturing? If they could have, they would have. I mean, for God's sake, you can't take it, as I said before, because of military considerations. Amphibious assaults are the hardest exercise in the military. Um, they would have to be able to bridge nine, nine hours of traffic, not just once, but continually to bring in supplies, okay? And the United States is sitting there with submarines, missiles, whatnot, okay? So maybe they could do it, but are they feeling lucky today? And every day, Xi stands up, you know, today's not the day I feel lucky. You know, if you're running a supply chain, there's been a lot of conversation about diversification, moving out of China, or at least not concentrating all of your product uh, resources in China. Is that, and, and a lot of folks have used the Taiwan story as the reason why there's a lot of other reasons why companies need to shift out of it, you know, political changes, the lockdowns, the, just the, you know, all of the challenges of dealing with a autocratic government. Do you think that the Taiwan story in the next decade is just, is largely going to be a story versus reality? I don't think it's Taiwan. Taiwan isn't large enough and can't provide the massive amounts of cheap goods that China's provided. I'm looking at India. Something very important has happened in India. India used to be a patron, is uh, the patron of, uh, used to be India, used to be Russia. The, China, uh, the Indians have realized that China is a bad, that Russia, I'm sorry, is a bad bet. And they've come to the United States. They bought a very large shipment of uh, engines for aircraft from the United States. They used to buy them from Russia. They're fighting on the Indian-Chinese border with China and are very hostile to China. Now, India has always had a huge problem, which is that it's not a country. It's a bunch of different countries that were forced together by Britain, and they don't like each other. So every once in a while, they try to kill each other, which is really in bad taste. Um, but if Modi can hold it together, probably. Uh, the first is a huge delegation coming to Washington from India, I think, next week. Watch that delegation. It's very important. So if we also have India in the American relationship, now China is really worried. India very much wants to take China's place in the U.S. markets. 
So if we're talking about substituting for China, it's not Taiwan, India, if they pull this off and they want to pull this off and the Americans want to pull this off, uh, that's the one to watch. The problem is it takes so long to build that infrastructure and so much theft and everything else. This is India, so it's going to be hard to do. But U.S. companies coming in there, and I think they will even more than they have, that's the other option for the United States, and I think that's it. Taiwan just doesn't reach that level. You know, it's interesting because I think yesterday uh, at Paris Air Show, uh, an, air, an Indian airline made one of the largest orders, aircraft orders in history, 580 Boeing uh, jets. Of course. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's sort of telling about, you know, a lot of the sort of aircraft purchases or military purchases are largely political, so it sort of shows the orientation of. Well, Taiwan is in a small war with China. It therefore turns to the United States. So to understand supply chain, you understand economics is fine, War is very important. So having a war on, on the borders with China, however big or small it is, they're going to turn to the United States. Russia is not a player at this point. They're going to turn to the United States. The United States is going to be its usual lovely self, uh, trying to get every penny it can get, but it will work. And when we think of supply chain, always think of war, not just economics. Both of them influence what happens. George, Europe is another story that's, um, you know, has continued to go through these cycles and in, in, its, in itself. What are your thoughts on Europe? There is no such place as Europe. It's a continent. There's France, there's Germany, there's Italy. And they've tried to say with the EU, they're really all the same. Well, trying to have a central bank that finances Germany and Italy is very, very hard. They want totally different things. So they've never come together in a coherent economic policy, although they tried. They have NATO, and that sort of is, you, they pass resolutions. Sometimes they do it. So from the American point of view, we deal country by country, not through NATO. We talk to the Germans and so on. And so to me, the question in Europe is not whether it'll fall apart, all these institutions, but whether there's ever going to be a time it works. So you have to look at Europe country by country. Right now, my country that I bet on is Poland. Poland has become the major military force in Europe with American help. We like Poland. Uh, we used to like Germany, not so much now. Poland has become that, and a lot of money is going to Poland so what comes out of this eventually is that Gdansk, the port there, is going to be very important. Poland is a country that, unlike the other countries, actually has a national will, a national consensus, and is also incredibly educated. So what I look at is, okay, what country in Europe is going to play, not whether Europe plays. And when I look at it, Poland is the one with the United States is turning Ukraine. That's the first. Let's go back to the United States for a second, and particularly the U.S. dollar, because a lot of our power is related to our currency. Um, there's been a lot of conversation about the de-dollarization around the world. Um, we've seen reports where come, you know, the BRICS countries have come together to try to create, or at least suggested they're going to create an alternative country uh, currency to the United States. 
What is your thoughts on the de-dollarization? Well, as soon as you're willing to give a $10,000 loan denominated Zlotis, uh, <laughs> then it might happen. So long as you insist on having it in dollar denominated, it's not going to. The United States is the largest economy in the world and the most secure military force. Nowhere else do you find that kind of security. And when you're doing long-term business, security of the currency really matters. And you can talk about it, and they've always talked about it, we're going to have an alternative currency. Gold? Insane. You can't print gold, and sometimes you have to print currency. Um, Zlotis, Lira, I mean, as soon as you feel that you want your deal to be denominated in some other currency than dollars, the dollar can decline. Until then, it's a fable. I mean, there's folks that would argue that the fact that you can debase the currency and print, uh, inevitably, you know, just continue to print is, is actually a bug, not a feature of currency. It sounds like you're actually suggesting that it's a feature, not a bug, to be able to effectively print. I'm a stupid person. I look at what people do. The same people who are saying we have to have another currency are still using dollars. Okay. When they stop using dollars, and I'm not bright, that's a hint that it won't work. On the other hand, when they do, it's just talk. And my view of the dollar is it is backed by the most awesome economy in the world and it's an awesome military. And I take two of them together. And who else can provide that sort of security? So, yeah, people have been dreaming about getting rid of the dollar ever since it became the dominant currency and the pound went away. And how went away because they lost the game. I don't see us losing the game for a very long time. So it sounds like you're bullish on America. You're yes. putting your bets on the U.S. Let's talk a little bit more about the American story. So it's been a lot of political instability, uh, at least as it relates to my, you know, I'm 44 years old. feels like we had this very sort of dysfunctional government, uh, dysfunctional election cycle. We know that there's another election coming up. What are your thoughts on how do we transition from what is arguably one of the most unstable things in the last couple of decades to better times? Well, first we remember that we had a similar election just before the depression. Uh, and we do this and it looks like we can't survive. Then you remember, what are your alternatives? Okay, it's not going to survive. So we will have a president. Half the country will hate him. That's given. He will be a scoundrel and a moron and a fool. He also will be working for foreign governments. I mean, we, presidents are made not to govern, but to be a piñata. And that's, they seem to like it. But we have to understand, if you don't understand the past and how we handle this, we will assume it's never been like this. And young people like you, 44, don't remember anything worth remembering. So, <laughs> so I mean, you don't go back to watch. Here, here was FDR. He's got his guy, Hoover, who is really a very nice, smart guy, but he like, hasn't a clue. The economy is collapsing. Unemployment is going through the roof. We're finished. And he comes in and he does something really stupid. He cuts taxes for the poor. It was the same thing as Reagan cutting taxes for the rich. 
that was not something you were supposed to do. So one thing these guys have in common is they have no background to do anything, and therefore they're not tied into any concept, and they do what seems to work. And so we we basically elected a man who Walter Lippmann, the very famous columnist, said was the least qualified man ever to be president, FDR. The reason he said that, he wasn't like any other president. So look for, not in this election, but next election, a really stupid guy to run for president and start solving problems. I mean, it depends on which part of the aisle you're in. You would argue the other guys you classified as that. Yeah, but we have a, we managed to elect an Andrew Jackson, a Rutherford B. Hayes, who introduced the gold standard that nobody thought would work. You go through these cyclical presidents and you find, one, none of them had any respect. Two, none of the men had any idea what they were going to do. Three, having no idea, they improvised at common sense and they transformed the country. So we're heading into that period. We're in it already. It's pretty harsh, if that worse. But out of that is going to come a new America. What happened with Roosevelt? Tech and all that investment money, where did it go? To tech. With Roosevelt, it went to a war, but also went to really surging the auto industry. Into uh, So in each of these elections, some technology comes out that we weren't expecting. I have my picks, but what always comes is a new America. You're, when you say tech and FDR, you're talking energy, you're talking airplanes, you're talking the automobile, military technology. The microchip transformed American society, and it is kind of reaching its endpoint of what it's going to do. And that was made possible because there was investment capital available. And that investment capital was available because of the Laffer curve, which everybody laughed at. And it said, basically, we have plenty of money for buying goods. We don't have goods to buy. And so he went into this. So we look forward to the next president coming and looking at a country that's in shambles. And the reason the U.S. survives is we have a flexible system. The Chinese are locked into a certain way of doing things. So are the Europeans who had those. The Americans are not locked in. They can overthrow old truths and grasp the new reality. So that's one of the reasons, it's not that I'm simply in love with America, I am, but it's, I've watched their history. So what I do is I, I spend a lot of time taking a look, life-finding stupid people, and knowing that they're the ones who are too dumb to know that they can't be done. George, tech, when you talk about technology, it's obviously on a lot of people's minds here. Um, is it AI? Is it biotech? What are what are the technology revolutions that define a new transition to a new... AI is a name for a new class of computer, computing system. We've been having these a long time. Each time one comes along, it will change the world. It will transform everything. We will no longer have sex. We will do computers. <laughs> Every one of them. You cannot have artificial intelligence because we don't know what intelligence is. <laughs> I worked at Shapes, Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, as a young man, and we were doing computer war games. And we had to build maps. 
And we wanted AI. We used the same programs. They didn't work at Lisp. So we, did. we had expert systems, which they're using now again, where we took experts and had them explain how they do what they do. Couldn't explain it. It's just, go explain to, to your wife, even your husband, what you do. The problem is translating intelligence into a routine. And we're able to make smarter and smarter computers. And this is of that period. And we imbue them with heroic powers. That is just moving along. So I am cynical about claims made for AI, but I think it's a very good program. Now, intelligence means that somebody has to come along and figure out what it is. I tried. I spent six months drinking coffee, trying to figure out what the flag, the map maker thought of when he did it. And I, I couldn't, he couldn't, and that's where we are. So the biotech revolution is one that's obviously become top of mind during COVID. It's controversial for some people. What does that look like for the next decade for us? Well, I think that medical technology will replace the microchip technology in the next chip because we developed technologies to solve problems. We had a problem with information. We had a problem with transportation. That's the way it's helped. Our biggest problem now is medicine. We learned in COVID that our medical establishment does a great job on single patients. In dealing with a huge complex thing, their time frame for solving problems and the problem's time frame, they, they don't match. But there's another deep problems coming up. Uh, I'm that problem. As you get older, you get more useless. You can't do anything, but you still consume all sorts of products. We have a decline of in the birth rate. Uh, they are not having their fun and we're taking care of it, not having it. And we're not going to have enough babies which means you're going to have a older population and the tax base to support them is not going to be there. So there's got to be cures for certain diseases, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, the other ages. We, can, we can't afford it any longer. And this is where you have to have a radically different thought. Information, microchip. Transportation, internal combustion engine. We have to have a new medical problem. And also one that if it sees, you know, if it sees COVID or it doesn't say, uh, give me a couple of years, I'll see what I can do. This is not where I do it. There is a new technology in medicine that is being thought of and will be, I think, extremely important and will be necessary for the U.S. economy. Because without it, we're going to have a lot of problems. George, one of the things we learned in COVID was that the U.S. was not, from a supply chain perspective, was not prepared for such an event. Like, we were good at responding to events. We're really poor at planning for them. Uh, except military. It seems like the Department of Defense is pretty good at preparing, hopefully. Do you think that shifts? Does that conversation shift, or is it because it's been resolved, is it, is it largely a thing of the past? Well, uh, look at the past. When Ford brings in the automobile, nobody thinks it's going to transform the face of the country by making things possible. Uh, when the microchip is introduced, almost all of it by DOD, by the way, um, 
nobody imagines what it's going to bring. The nature in the United States, particularly of new technologies, is we underestimate what's going, ha- what going to happen, but it manages to hit what you've got to solve. So I think it's going to be a while before we appreciate what's been done, what's being done now. But COVID drove home the point. We, this doesn't work, folks. And the demographics of the United States and many other countries don't work. So I don't know where the solution comes. I'm not know nothing about medicine. I simply know that from a modeling point of view, that's where it goes. And that's going to be a worldwide transformation because the number one problem economically in many countries is demographic. So George, one of the other major concerns is climate change and the carbon footprint. Uh, It's certainly a topic in the political cycle. It's a topic with our industry. Our industry is having to address it. Uh, and and bring solutions. What are your thoughts on climate change and how we deal with that? Please don't throw anything at me now. (laughs) Climate change is very real. But all the models that you're talking about say that everything will be screwed. Everything is never screwed. For example, perhaps the Sahara will become the breadbasket of the world. I don't know. Climate change means things change. But... People who talk about climate change say it will change and everything will change. And I've never seen a phenomenon that had a universal impact. So climate change, to me, and the models that I run, really focus in on the differentials that are created. Right now, the breadbasket is the United States, let's say. It may not be able to be it, but the question is, will the earth become uninhabitable. Well, it assumes a universal, identical impact. And the weather doesn't usually work like that. So I really believe the models that say that we're having climate change are correct. The models that tell us the impact are not. They're not sufficiently grasping the differentials. I mean, that's a certainly a more encouraging way to think of uh, what's happening. Um, I know that there's a lot of pressure from the public uh, as well as political pressure to decarbonize. Is A lot of it feels like it's grounded in this sort of philosophy and sort of I- ideological driven versus the realities of what that will take. Do you think that that process continues or is there, I mean, there's now a backlash against anything ESG? To a very great extent is rhetoric. It's not reality the cost economically of doing it is staggering. So one of the problems is when you come up with a solution for a potential problem, which creates a current crisis, you usually get a political pushback. Uh, They have had a very good effect in letting everyone know that something is happening. In terms of policy planning, they have failed to understand the various outcomes and how to manipulate it. But the idea that we should go into a worldwide depression now to head it off, it just isn't going to happen. People are not going to do that. I mean, Germany and Europe have, in many ways, shot themselves in the foot, you know, turning off the nuke plants and, uh, you know, mandating some pretty aggressive policies. California as basically trying to outlaw the internal combustion engine. Trying to outlaw it, indeed. But see the way they do it. Fair, but they have moved policies forward that really challenge. There is an ideology that is very popular. 
until the costs are understood. Do you think that we have the political well-being to understand those costs? Well, the, what we don't have is an understanding of if you implement this cost, what will the other costs be? We assume that merely lowering the temperature everywhere will lead to a stable, stable uh, weather. We don't understand the weather and how it produces itself very well. So the question that is not being studied is differentials. So, for example, we don't know really what soil type does to uh, warming. Therefore, it may be that certain countries will be screwed, but that the world itself as a whole will do very nicely. We don't know. I don't know. The studies have gone into trying to track heat rise. What has to be studied now is the interaction between the earth as it is and the heat. I'm not an expert in this. I know people who are, but we ran some studies in it, and I'm clear, I'm completely ignorant as to what's going to happen. I would like to say that a lot of the people who claim not to be are equally <laughs> Georgia, let's fast forward 20 years, uh, or even go 10 years in the future, 2035. We've sort of gone through this cycle that you talk about. We've transitioned to something new. What What does that look like for Americans and you know, perhaps the globe? Who is winning? Who's losing? Who's, you know, is America still the most powerful country in the world? Is uh, the American economy the, still the largest in the world? Well, what is the most important military weapon for the United States? The Navy? No. It is developing new technologies quickly, rapidly integrating them into the fleet or force. The speed at which the Americans can develop a technology and integrate it is their greatest weapon because that's where you spend the money, integration. So, you know, I was once present when a Russian anti-tank missile that flew air unerringly and destroyed our tanks did it. And we looked at it and said, well, it's various words you don't want to hear, but <laughs> damn, this was in the Arab-Israeli war. It took the Americans two years to field two things. One, a new, um, a new tank coating that rebelled, and second, the same missile. We're very, very good at rapid innovation. And that goes beyond the military where I was familiar. It goes to virtually every industry. The speed at which the supply chain adjusts itself is its greatest strength. Other nations are not built around a highly mobile population, not built around the idea that, well, this doesn't work here anymore, you got to move there. They, Germany doesn't have that dynamism, nor does China in many ways. We do. It is that dynamism built into our culture that makes the supply chain effective over time, and that has to be preserved but we all came here as immigrants. We all set the hell with our old countries. Mine was hungry. Said, God, I can do better than this. I got to the United States. So we're a country that framed itself on overthrowing the past and finding the future. It's not surprising that the guys who saw the AT3 Sager take out American tanks as Israelis are driving went home and found a fix. Now, some have argued that China, its advantage is that it, it's not so much on 
necessarily it's the amount of money and the sort of narrow focus that it's able to do. It's able to sort of rally so many so much resources and money and capital towards any industry it wants to lead. But you're arguing, and maybe I'm if at least what I'm hearing, is that our secret sauce to that is our ability to innovate rapidly that gives us the edge. We have that edge because we don't have to get the government to agree. The Germans somehow or another must get buy-in from the government. The Chinese divide up their government in ways to supervise various things. Governments are not very efficient at certain things. They're good at others. One of the benefits of the United States, and this has long been known, is that innovation and government approval don't go hand in hand, and they suffer from that. So when we go deeper into the question, why are Americans good at innovating? One part is they innovated their lives, or their grandfathers did or something. The other thing is that they're risk takers because the risks frequently pay off, so they change things around. And thirdly, the government is there to fight itself, not to actually do something. So asymmetric risk, right? Like the, in the United States, we sort of have... And, and con- this is important because when you watch in a crisis, the, COVID, the supply chain shifts itself, which it does. When there's no resourcing a firm product here, it's extremely dynamic and it is the greatest gift to the United States. We call it now uh, supply chain. We used to call it manufacturing and delivery, but the same thing. Take a look at the last century's great innovations in technology, from the automobile to the microchip. Take a look where it came from. And take a look, what other country could you have see Steve Jobs start out and build an empire? It's very difficult to find a China that did that without a government hand in the basket. It sounds like reshoring is something you're bullish on bringing back supply chains to the United States. Well, the United States is not very efficient, is expensive in certain things. Things that are ready, ready for manufacture with a clear understanding of what that manufacturer is um, should stay over somewhere else. But we have so many innovations coming. The microchip was not sent overseas until it really understood what it was doing. So it's a timing issue. But there's a time when it's cheaper to send it to Poland or Hungary. And it's done. What is that? Well, George, I want to thank you. This has been uh, enlightening. This is exciting. As an American, I'm certainly excited about our future. You've given us a lot of hope, a lot of things to think for. Really appreciate you coming here today. So everyone, please give George a, a hand. Dude, we should just remember, you're Americans. You don't like each other. <laughs> thank you, everybody. George, appreciate your time this morning.